The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore. Part 3, The 1800s. Early research into what would become psychology involved studies of the brain and the nervous system. While the philosophers asked questions about whether we could really ever know anything other than our own perceptions, physiologists were busy discovering how the brain and nervous system functioned. Eventually, the philosophical questions would be definitively answered in the work of people like Helmholtz, Fechner, Weber, and Wilhelm Wundt. Those men would demonstrate that changes in perception, a mental process, corresponded with measurable stimuli in the physical world. Of course, for all of this to happen, we needed an understanding of how nerves work. Nerves, or neurons, are the building blocks of the nervous system. Neurons make up nerves. Nerves form the nervous system, and the central nervous system comprises the brain and spinal cord. We now know that the nervous system uses electrochemical energy, both electricity and chemicals, such as neurotransmitters or drugs, affect the neurons. In this podcast, we will learn a little bit about early understandings of how nerves affected muscles, such as the hypothesis that nerves were little tubes that carried animal spirits into the muscles. And we'll learn something about how the study of electricity led to the discovery of the electrical function of the nervous system and the brain. René Descartes was obsessed with the problem of movement. Strolling through the royal gardens in Saint-Germain, France, Descartes could observe the wonders of pneumatics. Mechanical creatures, great and small, were made to move through the power of fluid flowing through tubes. Stepping on a particular paving stone, for instance, could trigger a mechanical creature to pop up out of a bush, perhaps spraying the unwary visitor with a small stream of water. Descartes was acquainted with the pneuma, or fluid concepts, that dated back to Galen in ancient Rome. And he wondered if perhaps the pneuma concepts were wrong. Could there instead be a simpler mechanistic explanation for human and animal movement? Was it possible that human movement occurred in much the same way as the mechanical animals in the royal gardens? Descartes speculated that the nerve fibers were like the water pipes in statues, filled with fluid or animal spirits that would activate the muscles. Muscles bulge when they contract, almost as though they are filling with fluid. When they relax, they become smaller and more flexible. What, however, was controlling the mechanism? Descartes identified the pineal gland, and speculated that the pineal gland would tilt slightly to create the movement of fluids resulting in the movements or reflexes within the body. 
Many people accepted Descartes' explanation for movement, but not everyone was convinced. A Dutch physician, Jan Swammerdam, 1637-1680, tested Descartes' theory of movement, and his test was rather ingenious. He began by suspending a frog leg muscle inside of a sealed jar. This jar had a hollow pipette at the top. The nerve servicing the muscle ran out of a sealed hole. Swammerdam then placed a drop of water at the opening of the pipette, fully sealing the jar. So think about the setup. If Descartes was right, and animal spirits flowed into the muscle, one would first have to wonder where those spirits came from, since the muscle was not connected to its original owner, nor to the pineal gland. Furthermore, if animal spirits did flow into the muscle, then the muscle should increase in size and push the drop of water out of the pipette. If, for some unexplained reason, the muscle shrunk, it should pull the drop of water into the pipette. Swammerdam then electrically stimulated the exposed nerve. The muscle within the jar contracted, and the drop of water did not move. This demonstrated that the muscle contained no more mass when it was flexed than when it was at rest. No animal spirits entered the muscle, and the volume of the muscle did not change when it flexed. Animal spirits were debunked. Descartes' theory was wrong, but he still gets credit that his theory stimulated research that advanced the field. Benjamin Franklin, 1706-1790, was an American polymath, meaning that he did everything. Although he may be best known for appearing on the $100 bill and for inventing electricity, he was also an author, printer, political theorist, politician, postmaster, scientist, musician, inventor, satirist, civic activist, statesman, diplomat, and formidable Enlightenment thinker. So great was his contribution to the founding of the United States that he has even been called the first American. He invented the lightning rod, also bifocals, the Franklin stove, and a carriage odometer. He formed the first public lending library in America and the first fire department in Pennsylvania. What many people do not know about Benjamin Franklin was his fondness for electricity. Of course, Benjamin Franklin did not really invent electricity, nor did he discover it. In fact, some of his ideas about electricity were wrong. But he did identify what he called an electrical fluid that he described as having qualities that were both positive and negative. In a letter to Peter Collinson, Benjamin Franklin wrote, Fire only circulates. Hence have arisen some new items among us, 
we say that B is electrosized positively, A negatively, or rather B is electrosized plus and A minus. These terms we may use till philosophers give us better. We now know, of course, that electricity is not really a fluid. And although Franklin assumed that the flow was from positive to negative, in fact, the reverse is true. But philosophers, scientists, and electricians failed to come up with better terms than those Benjamin Franklin thought up himself. We still use positive and negative, as well as a list of other terms to describe electricity that were coined by Benjamin Franklin. Battery, charge, conductor, condenser, plus, minus, positively, negatively, and armature. Of course, the most famous story about Benjamin Franklin and electricity involved flying a kite in an electrical storm. Now, you have no doubt seen the pictures, I am sure. There is Benjamin Franklin, flowing white hair and receding hairline, round spectacles on his nose, flying a kite in a rainstorm, waiting for lightning to strike the kite. And when it did, he touched a metal key attached to the end of the kite string and received quite a shock. The very first man to prove once and for all that lightning carried electricity. Like so many historical tales, this one is more fiction than fact. Benjamin Franklin did in fact fly a kite, but the details have changed with time, so let us set the record straight. First, Benjamin Franklin did not conduct this experiment alone. He was accompanied by his son, William. Now, some drawings of the scene do include a young William as a participant, but again, this detail is distorted. William was, in fact, a young man at the time of the experiment. Second, this was not the first time that such an experiment had been attempted. Thomas Francois d'Alibard of France had conducted the exact same experiment one month earlier, although that news had not yet reached Benjamin Franklin in America. Many of Benjamin Franklin's experiments were conducted in public, or should I say, Franklin had a reputation for spectacular public presentations of his scientific research. The truth was, however, Benjamin Franklin hated to experiment in public in case that he failed. He did not mind showing off his carefully scripted demonstrations. But this, his most famous experiment, was conducted with only he and his son, William. Benjamin Franklin flew his kite in a gathering rainstorm to gather electrical charge from the clouds on June 15, 1752. Now, here are a number of misconceptions about this experiment. First, Franklin was a young man in his mid-30s, not an old man with a receding gray hairline. His son, William, was an adult and not a child. The experiment was not conducted outdoors, but rather they were undercover so that they would not get rained on. And the kite was never struck by lightning. The charge that built up on the kite string came from the cloud cover, and Franklin did not touch that key. Instead, he attempted to charge a Leiden jar, 
that he later discharged to his hand. In fact, the television program Mythbusters proved that had he touched that key immediately after a lightning strike, that electrical jolt would have killed him. So, how can we be certain that the stories that we've heard about Benjamin Franklin and his kite experiment are accurate? Well, although the experiment was conducted in 1752, the first written account appeared in Joseph Priestley's History and Present Status of Electricity, published in 1767, about 15 years later. Benjamin Franklin, later in his life, had a bitter falling out with his son William. Despite the, the animosity that existed between these two men, his son never disputed Priestley's account of the experiment. And this leads us to believe that the Priestley account is probably historically accurate. And let me tell you one more story. Although it's not directly related to electricity, electricity played a small role in Benjamin Franklin's favorite invention. And it is called the glass harmonica. Not harmonica with an H, but harmonica with an A. It comes from the word harmonia, a Greek word meaning harmony. The glass harmonica consisted of 37 bowls that were mounted horizontally on an iron spindle that could be turned by a foot pedal. Sound was produced by touching the edges, the rims of the bowls, with moistened fingertips. You are listening to Oracle Speaks from Elegy for Atlantis by William Wilde Zeitler. The ringing sound, like a fingertip on the edge of a crystal wine glass, is the harmonica. Mozart, Handel, and Beethoven all composed works for Ben Franklin's harmonica. Franklin considered it his best invention, the one that he favored the most. Franz Mesmer played the harmonica, in fact used it as an integral part of mesmerism, a form of hypnosis. Important to psychology were the rumors that circulated that Playing the harmonica caused musicians and listeners to go mad. Musicologist Friedrich Rochlitz said, quote, The harmonica excessively stimulates the nerves, plunges the player into a nagging depression, and hence into a dark and melancholy mood that is an apt method for slow self-annihilation. If you are suffering from any nervous disorder, you should not play it. If you are not yet ill, you should not play it. If you are feeling melancholy, you should not play it. Luigi Galvani, 1737-1798, was an Italian physician 
and tinkerer in anatomy, among other things. Prior to Galvani, there were two sources of electricity. The first was lightning. Now, lightning has some problems in that it's delivered in a big jolt and all at once. It's unpredictable. You never know where the next lightning bolt is going to strike. And it's very difficult to harness the energy in a lightning strike. And this is unfortunate, because if that power could be harnessed, it would be enough to power a medium-sized American city. Now, the other source of electricity was static electricity. You may have experienced static electricity if you have worn rubber shoes on a nylon carpet, especially in the winter time. As you shuffle across the carpet, you can sneak up on your little brother who's studying diligently at the kitchen table and reach out with one fingertip and touch the tip of his ear. Ah, yes, that's great fun. Uh, or you could have experienced static electricity if you ever had reason to rub your pet cat with a glass rod. That will create static electricity as well. But Galvani performed an experiment with frog legs and animal electricity. This was conducted in 1791 and became important to physiology and to psychology later on. So Galvani was busy dissecting frogs' legs, trying to prove that a frog's testicles were actually in their legs. He was quickly proved wrong by other biologists at the University of Pavia. At the same time, Galvani was also conducting unrelated experiments with static electricity. At some point, Galvani's assistant touched the sciatic nerve of a dissected frog leg with a metal scalpel that had picked up a static electrical charge. The muscles of the dead frog leg twitched, as if in life. Now, nerves are more sensitive to electricity than to anything. And Galvani was the first investigator to observe the relationship between electricity and animation, or life. And this discovery would prove important to later study of the nerves, the nervous system, and the brain. In no time at all, Galvani had developed workable batteries that made frog muscles jump. And he called his discovery animal electricity. Now, Galvani didn't fully understand what he had developed. In fact, he kept piling up frog legs to make a battery. The source of that term, animal electricity, was in Galvani's conception that it was an electrical fluid that was being carried to the muscles by the nerves. The world's first functional battery was invented by Alessandro Volta. 1745 to 1827. He was an Italian physicist and an adversary of Galvani. The invention of the battery stretches back to the year 1800. Luigi Galvani had explained his discovery as animal electricity, as if there was some 
electrical fluid within the animal. Volta realized that the frog's leg was serving as a conductor or a detector of electricity. The electrical energy was carried by positively and negatively charged ions, not by the air or by a fluid. So by stacking up metals, zinc or silver, between brine-soaked cardboard, Volta created the first battery, which was called a voltaic pile. And you have probably already figured out that the word volt, drawn from Volta's name, is a term that is still used to describe the power of a battery. And just to make sure that he was right, Volta replicated Galvani's conditions using his brine-soaked paper and, in fact, could detect the flow of the electricity. If you would like to apply the lessons of Alessandro Volta in your own life, here's how you can make a battery out of a lemon. You're going to need two kinds of metal, zinc and copper. Now, these are fairly easy to find. The zinc can come in the form of a galvanized nail. And the copper? Well, get a penny out of your wallet. Even better if it's a shiny penny. Now, place the zinc-covered nail in one part of the lemon, and an inch away, cut a slit and put that copper penny. Now, one lemon alone might not be enough, but if you were to put several lemons in series, you could create enough electricity to power a small light. Now, the energy for the battery does not come from the lemon, but rather from a chemical change in the zinc. It's called oxidation, and it's really the loss of electrons. The lemon, with its highly acidic environment, simply provides a place where this can happen. And of course, the power of your battery wears down very quickly as oxidation covers the copper. However, this idea as well, that you can transfer electrons from one form of metal to another, is the source of the idea for electroplating. Johann Peter Müller, 1801-1858, was a German physiologist, anatomist, and ichthyologist. Müller was best known both for his discoveries and also for his ability to synthesize knowledge, specifically knowledge from sciences such as physiology to an emerging science such as psychology. In 1843, Müller published Elements of Physiology, in which he wrote that the study of body function is aided by human and comparative anatomy, as well as chemistry, the microscope, and other departments of physical science. So, studies of the brain could and should be done with the guidance of other scientific anatomical studies, such as the application of stimulation to nerves, the physical stimulation of electricity can affect the physiology of the body and cause movement or even perception. One of Mueller's greatest contributions to physiology and psychology was his discovery of the specific energy of the nerves. Mueller realized 
that neural activity is electrical. Stimulating a nerve results in a characteristic sensation. If you stimulate a motor neuron, the muscle attached to it contracts. If you stimulate a tactile sensory neuron, you perceive warmth or pain. If you stimulate a rod or a cone in the eye, the stimulation by the light causes an impression in the occipital lobe of the brain. Mueller's conclusion that light stimulates a sensory cell was different than the existing explanation offered by Aristotle. The Aristotelian understanding of light and perception was that light moved through the optic nerve in order to be perceived. The light didn't stimulate a cell, it actually entered the brain through the nerves. Now this was a very common misunderstanding throughout antiquity and in ancient times, in fact all the way up until the Enlightenment. In the Bible, Jesus of Nazareth, speaking to his disciples, appeals to this same misconception, talking about light entering the eye as he was making a larger point about morality. It is recorded that Jesus said in Matthew 6.22, The light of the body is the eye. If then your eye is true, all your body will be full of light. Johann Mueller concluded from his research that each sensory nerve has its own specific energy. The stimulation of a sensory nerve causes a sensation depending upon the nature of the sense organ, not on the type of stimulation. For instance, stimulation of the retina by light, pressure, or mechanical stimulation invariably produces luminous impressions. You can prove it to yourself. Close your eyes and then rub your eyelids. What do you see? you will see light impressions or shooting stars. No matter how you stimulate it, even the stimulation of the mechanical pressure of you rubbing your eyes, the specific energy of the optic nerve is always perceived as light. Mueller's studies stimulated further research to localize functions within the nervous system. Now this got off to a stumbling start with what became phrenology. But eventually, the study of the brain yielded some of the brain's secrets, along with the understanding that the brain is the organ of the mind. Music